Hello and welcome back to the Drop Step podcast. I'm your host Jack Quantrill and today we're getting back in to first in class with a bit of a themed episode. I'm just coming off the back of a wonderful trip with my fiance to Lithuania where she's from and if you don't know much about Lithuania the first thing I'm going to tell you is that they are basketball mad. They're crazy, they're devout, it's their main sport basketball is a religion and this episode of First In Class is going to have a little bit of a Lithuanian theme to it because we're doing 1986 versus 2016. Some of you might be a little bit confused by that but there's an interesting little wrinkle. This is the Sabonis versus Sabonis episode. So Arvida Sabonis was drafted in 1986 by the Portland Trailblazers and he only came over 10 years later in 1996 sort of a shell of his former self we're going to discuss what he was like at his peak based off reports some analysis from some draft guys and some some tape and uh, also the opinions of Bill Walton Bill Walton was higher on Arvidas Sabonis than pretty much anyone you're ever going to meet but then Domantas Sabonis was drafted in 2016 to the Oklahoma City Thunder and has since become a really pivotal player in this league. Obviously, helping along with Yaron Fox and Keegan Murray, Malik Monk, Kevin Herter to lead the Sacramento Kings back into the playoffs and narrowly miss out on a second round berth, just losing to Golden State in in a seven game series. So today is 1986 versus 2016. We're going to focus a little bit on that Sabonis versus Sabonis tandem but get ready for the third episode of First in Class because we've got two really interesting rosters. Some guys that have been well in the limelight of the last couple of NBA off-seasons that it's going to be interesting to unpack how their careers could have turned out, what their peak was, if there's going to be more value from them and just how they fit in different circumstances. And as far as the 1986 team goes, It's a really, really modern outfit. I'm going to say this about a lot of those old draft classes like we had in the 1978 episode, that Larry Bird team that had great outside shooting, really versatile perimeter defenders that could switch and a team that hypothetically could have really got out there and caused some damage in transition. But 86 is different from that 78 team and I can't wait to discuss how I think they play, how I think some of those players would translate into the modern NBA, and ultimately, who's going to come out on top in the 1986 versus 2016 first round matchup in first in class. Uh, Let's get into it. We're going to jump in with 2016 first. 2016 draft, seven drafts ago now, which is kind of crazy to think about, gave us six all-stars A couple of All-NBA selections. We're going to get into all six All-Stars because they all make this team. And it was a really deep draft. From what I've been able to see, 14 guys really kind of starter quality, fringe starter quality in this team amongst those star players. So some of the big names to miss out include Avica Zubats of the LA Clippers. You might remember from the regular season last year, he went insane for a 31 and 29 game, but the big Croatian doesn't quite make our team. Uh, another center that doesn't make it is Jakob Pertl. He just misses out. I really like him as a rim protector. He's a great finisher, 
got some decent passing chops and really helped some of those San Antonio guards sort of learn the ropes in the pick and roll. But that's not going to be what we're focusing on today. He just about misses the cut. Um, some less fringe players. Torian Prince misses out. Malik Beasley doesn't quite make it. Karis Levert also on the chopping board. And our biggest cut was actually the rookie of the year from the 2017 season. And that's Malcolm Brogdon. Malcolm, really unlucky to miss out, but we've got a lot of primary ball handlers and initiators. And you'll see who I go for instead of Malcolm, but we're just going for a three-point specialist. I know he's fantastic during the regular season, but 2016 also gave us one of the best volume three-point shooters the league has ever seen, even if that's kind of what he's good at. He's a he's a specialist, complete specialist. But um, Ben Simmons goes number one. He is selected in the team. He's not going to be starting. We'll get into him a little bit later. Just such a big what if in terms of what if he's drafted somewhere else, not next to Joel Embiid. Is he ever going to come back, be 80% of the player he was? Does he have the mentality for it anymore? I really hope he does. I think he messed the league around and sort of set a bit of a dangerous precedent. I know that Philadelphia was really on his back after that Atlanta playoff series, but... I mean, pulling the mental health card and then sitting out and foregoing your salary, it's its dangerous. I, I just hope that he can come back because when he was in his prime, certainly during regular season, just a phenomenal player to watch. Exerted so much rim pressure, an incredible playmaker, created so many open threes for his teammates that it didn't necessarily matter that he wasn't willing to take them. And a Defensive Player of the Year worthy guard which is insane you know 610 huge frame he was our number one pick some of the big misses of the draft at number four the phoenix suns just drafted devon booker in 2015 2015 doesn't make the cut for first in class by the way they've just got they've got cat porzingis booker uh and then it really starts to drop off just not enough top end talent uh so at number four the year after selecting booker at 13th they get a chance to add anyone not called Ben Simmons, Brandon Ingram and Jalen Brown. And they choose to pick Dragan Bender out of the league in four years, played 187 games. They miss out on Jamal Murray, who could have been a fantastic backcourt partner. Demanta Sabonis, who could have been incredible as a centre for chemistry, considering that during his Kentucky days, Booker was certainly a bit little, little bit more of an off-ball player, off-ball presence. He's obviously developed into... One of the smoothest shooting guards in the game today and probably a top 10 player can just do absolutely everything. But I'd love to have seen him play with Sabonis. Um, and then at five, Minnesota takes Chris Dunn, uh, a Danny Ainge favourite, sort of famously so. But really fantastic defensive guard. Doesn't quite have the shot to hold up in the NBA. Uh, he's on the jazz now. So let's get into it. At the point guard for the 2016 team is... NBA champion and Canada native Jamal Murray. Now, for the 2016 team, I'm not going to spend too much time telling you individual stats for these guys. You've watched them play this season. You're not going to be listening to this podcast if you don't know what these players are about. I'm going to talk more about team fit and how I expect them to blend together. And with that in mind, Jamal Murray is just the perfect complementary player for so many teams. So many stars in the league today have so much on-ball individual talent, 
But when they're forced to play with other stars that are ball dominant, they start to lose a bit of their value. But I think what we've seen with Jamal over the past couple of years is that he is an absolute elite shot maker. He is up there with the best of them. He's a gunner from three. He can get to the mid-range. He's uh, he's shifty around the basket, has a lovely layup package and can throw it down as well if he, built, if he builds up a head of steam. But what I love about Murray is that utility off ball. We've seen him run around screens. We've seen him operate in that two-man game with Jokic. And I just expect that with other stars, Murray is going to be able to shift up when he needs to and really take over. But he's also going to be posing a constant threat off ball. He's going to be happy to be integrated into movement systems, come off handoffs, uh, run around screens. This is just a guy that works brilliantly with other star talent. And the other thing I like about Murray as well is he's six foot four. A lot of these small guards, primary shot creators, they really struggle on the defensive end. Take Trey Young, for example, even Steph Curry. They both get targeted in the playoffs. Steph has got much better over the years. But we saw Murray be ruthlessly hunted by LeBron in the conference finals, particularly when he was in foul trouble. And he really stood up to that test. He's he's by no means shutting anyone down, but we know that he's of a high enough defensive caliber that you can win a championship with him at the end of the day. And he's a player that raises his game during the regular season over the last two years, which is going to be our sample size. He scored about 20 points per game and his last two postseason runs, he stepped it up to 26 points per game while getting more efficient. He's a 37% career three-point shooter and that's 40% in the playoffs. He just went ridiculous during the bubble. And even last year, he was hovering at around 39% on seven threes per game. We know he's a dead eye from the line. And yeah, Murray, one of the best players to watch in the league really getting the credit that he deserves and he's our starting point guard for the 2016 team and accompanying him in the backcourt is going to be a guy that's got a lot of abuse after this year's playoffs and that's Jalen Brown maybe the best player in the world that's accused of not having a left hand you guys can tell me different but Jalen regardless of what you thought of his most recent playoff run which I happen to think was probably hampered by he had a bad hand injury cut that's going to affect how you dribble. And if you're playing against a team as savvy as the Miami Heat, they're going to jump on that immediately. And he was embarrassed in a couple of games where they really jumped on his handle, got under him and forced some turnovers. He's not the best playmaker in the world, but what he is, is a really high level volume scorer. He's up at around 20 field goal attempts per game last year and scoring 27 points per game which is just ridiculous. And he can manufacture his own shot in isolation. In fact, that's probably his preference. Due to the complexion of the roster, we haven't seen too much standard pick and roll with Brown. It's more get to his spots. He loves the mid-range. He loves that little turnaround jumper. But he's also a guy that can get to the rim. He's a really, really strong finisher. He loves getting out in transition. And uh, he manufactures threes for himself at a really high level, can take them off the catch or off the dribble. His three-point percentage was only 34% last year, but when you factor in the difficulty of those threes and how many of them are self-created, what we have is a really high-level shot creator who I think is going to blend much better into this team when you factor in the ball movement that we're going to have with some of the players, like our small forward, our power forward, our centre, are all really well known for keeping the ball moving and having real playmaking instincts and he's not necessarily had that luxury in Boston 
never really partnered with a true playmaker. Even Kyrie, who can break down anyone and is listed as a point guard, is much more of a one-on-one bucket getter. We, He's got passing flair and everything, but it's it's not really his mindset to get his teammates involved. He's, he's more that ISO guy. And um, Brown has had a difficult situation to sort of learn and and better his game it's it's sort of been a baptism of fire for him in the last couple of years losing Kyrie losing Gordon Hayward and having to go out on his own with Jason and really take on a massive role within that Celtics offense and I think that's going to step back a little bit for this team just due to the sheer offensive talent that we've got he's not the best offensive player that we have on the team in fact he's probably for my money third but his job is going to be to get out in transition, attack the closeouts that are created for him, shoot it off the catch. And if he's up against a favourable matchup, absolutely go and dominate that guy. Whether it's in the post, whether you're trying to get past him, whether you're creating your three from a step back, that's his job. And that means that defensively, he can put that 6-6 strong frame to really good use and lock down guys on the perimeter really you know take advantage of his movement try and be a bit aggressive as well for some turnovers and I love that so Brown is going to be a really complimentary player just as Murray is be interesting to see how he adapts to more of a movement system you guys let me know in the comments what do you think Brown would look like in a different setting he plays in sometimes such a stale offense for the Celtics particularly under Eme last year I know that Smart had the ball moving and uh, Joe Mazzula likes a little bit more ball movement, loves the drive, kick, drive, kick, attack your advantage that's that's created for you. But it sometimes gets stale in pivotal moments. So playing with the centre that we're going to get onto a little bit later, I do wonder how Brown would fare. But that's our backcourt done. Getting onto the small forward position. For my money, this is a hot take. This is the best guy to come out of the 2016 draft. If you listen to my all NBA crystal ball episode you'll know that I tipped Brandon Ingram to make all NBA for the first time next year and if you want to hear more in detail about that really go and check that episode out I I broke down his game post all-star break really highlighted that playmaking feel how he can just access the mid-range at will and just how slow the game seems for him he completely plays at his own pace he gets his teammates involved and in this team he's going to be an offensive hub We've kind of got two, which is a little bit confusing. We haven't necessarily seen that in the NBA yet, which brings into question how would teams operate if they had the luxury of having two of these guys as opposed to the one. You know, having a Sabonis, having a Jokic, in my mind, having an Ingram is a real luxury for a team. If we ever got to a stage where you had two and the other guy was useful off the ball as well, it's just going to pose so many different questions for a defence. But in this team, Brandon Ingram is handling a lot of the ball. He's a great playmaker. Post All-Star, he got up to seven assists per game and can ping cross-court passes into the corners, skip passes with either hand. He throws dishes with real disguise, can operate in the pick and roll in a different way to Jalen Brown. And in my mind, he's slightly better at that than Jamal Murray. Jamal is a brilliant two-man operator, but he's had his game made so easy for him playing next to Nicola. So, Brandon is our small forward, much like Jalen. He can 
leverage his size on the defensive end. Uh, he's a really, really good three-point shooter now. For the past two years, he shot 39% from deep on decent, respectable volume. But really, that mid-range assassin that, like Brown, like Murray, can create a bucket in isolation. But I think the advantage that Ingram has is he really gets his teammates involved and can be used as this sort of heliocentric player, not in a Luca style, not in a Trey Young style, but where he can park himself at the elbows and just have players cut around him. He'll spot them and really leverage that threat in the mid-range shot. So Ingram is our third player in the starting lineup and coming in at the four, this is really just going to emphasise how much talent this team has, is probably our fourth option offensively. It's Pascal Siakam. Pascal, who's been in the news recently, Uh, as a potential trade target for many teams. There's rumours that Toronto don't necessarily want to extend Pascal, who's turning 30 next year, due a four to five year extension. Do you want to be paying 45, 50 million plus for a 35 year old down the line? Apparently Masai has pivoted away from that idea, probably due to the loss of Fred Van Vliet, but we can get into that on a different episode. Pascal, again, I'm not going to tell you a ton about his game, but he is an athletic six foot nine 24 point per game scorer last year 22 the year before that 21 he improves year on year and what jumps out to me about Siakam is how well-rounded his game is he's another one of these guys that loves operating in the mid-range he can take a guy down to the post punish smaller defenders and uh, he dimes up his teammates as well he's had a lot of that responsibility placed on him since Kawhi left since Carl Lowry left even and was up to about six assists per game but for this team he's uh, he's cutting he's getting out in transition he's taking on big wing matchups we've got a ton of size two through four in this team which I think is going to make up for the slightly substandard rim protector that we've got but Siakam is going to go back to being a little bit more of a complimentary piece which we saw he could do in that 2019 Raptors run but if he needs to get a bucket if he's got a favorable matchup if he's attacking a closeout you don't get these guys in these situations we might see something like that for the Suns this year with the amount of sheer offensive firepower that they have but Siakam's efficiency would go up his usage is going to go down but he's a strong finisher at the rim he can space it's not necessarily as big a strong suit but just a Swiss army knife of a power forward to have who's going to help on the boards and provide a little bit of weak side rim protection as well so that's our one through four and really greasing the wheels for this team because Jamal isn't necessarily that 10 assists per game point guard that we're going to discuss a lot through this series just because it is the creme de la creme. Uh, it's it's Demantas Sabonis and like I spoke about, the, the Lithuania theme of this episode, he's going to be matching up against his dad in the post. So let me know on Twitter, in the comments down below, how the hell do you think that matchup's going to look? Because he's given up a lot of size to his dad, but Sabonis is a really, really aggressive player in the post. Uh, I listened to the Zach Lowe podcast this week. He had Larry Nance on and he spoke about how the Lithuanians just operate differently. They're so aggressive. They're hitting you with elbows. They're throwing the ball around. They're backing you down relentlessly. And for a guy to get stamped on the chest... Uh, I think break his finger during regular season as well and just carry on playing. I think he played 82 games this year. He's an absolute Iron Man, and he's going to be a handoff hub for this team, much like we saw in Sacramento where he's really been fully unlocked this year. So Bonus is going to have 
three, four players that can move uh, around screens, collect handoffs and just capitalize on the advantage that he's going to generate for them off of his fantastic screening. He's one of the best screeners in the NBA. And I think that he has a little bit of potential to space. Like we said, that broken finger, that hand injury that happened about 50 games into the season, I think it damaged his outside shot a little bit. But we've seen Sabonis space from about 33% from deep. And he does have a fairly reliable mid-range jumper. It wasn't on show during the playoffs, but I personally think that might be due to that hand injury. He's uh, he's an aggressive player that has finesse, that has passing vision. And he's just going to make the game really fun for his teammates. And on the defensive end, the big criticism of Sabonis has been where's the rim protection? He played next to Miles Turner for two, three, four years. I, I, I can't remember now uh, because it was thought that he can't be a primary rim protector for an NBA level defense. Certainly one that wants to be competing in the playoffs. But what he is, is a great rebounder. He doesn't foul too much. Sacramento really didn't give up a lot of free throws last year and he contests a lot of shots. He's not a guy that's going to get vertical, but he's going to be dominant on the defensive boards. He's going to grab offensive boards. So he's increasing your efficiency across the court. And I think for the offensive value that he provides, it's absolutely worth having in this starting lineup, particularly having those three big wings ready to stifle perimeter matchups, perhaps making his life a little bit easier than who he's had playing in front of him in Sacramento. You know, De'Aaron Fox, Kevin Herter, Harrison Barnes, Keegan Murray. You've got rookies there. You've got slightly smaller guys that can get punished on the perimeter. So that's our starting five. I think they're going to play a lovely flow game. Like a lot of these teams, they're going to get out in transition and they're going to have a lot of three-point threat from behind the arc. Uh, four, five guys that can really create their own shot. And that's going to be really, really hard to handle for any team. But coming off the bench for the 2016 team are some specialists. So we've got pick number 29 from the 2016 draft. And that's DeJounte Murray, picked by the Spurs originally, traded last year to the Hawks. And he's just landed himself a $120 million four-year extension with Atlanta. So he's going to be in that backcourt with Trey Young to start the season again this year under Quinn Snyder. And Murray is sort of a 7 to 8 out of 10 player in every area of the game. He's got a lovely mid-range shot. He can break players down off the dribble, not necessarily to the level of Jamal, who's starting in front of him, but he's a great defensive player. He's a chaotic defensive player. He's someone that gets his team in transition. He sniffs steals deflections he hunts for loose balls and he turns that into really fast offense and he's a good pick and roll operator he's really good we saw that in San Antonio where he partnered with Jakob Pertl in particular and got himself up to 22 points per game eight rebounds eight assists and shown that he can shoulder that burden but in this team due to the amount of creation that we've got he's going to be playing slightly more off ball which I think he's shown that he can do this year obviously Playing in Atlanta, it's still the Trey Young show. He's not operated off ball quite as much as they might have envisioned. But he was taking seven threes a game during this year's playoffs, hitting them at about 35-36% clip. So it's not like you've got Clay Thompson in the backcourt, Steph Curry ready to catch off ball, but just another guy that fits into this take advantage of the advantages created for you further on up the possession. He's going to be able to attack closeouts, get to his mid-range, get to the rim and get his teammates involved, keep the ball moving while being a real threat defensively. And uh, speaking about threat defensively, it's 
easily the most divisive player from the 2016 draft. And I think up until last year, where he sort of faded into obscurity a little bit, one of the most divisive players in the league by far. Our seventh man is Ben Simmons. So when I wrote this a year ago, Ben was starting at the point guard and the team looked a little different, but I... I just I don't know how he fits with this series where we're taking peaks, but I'm not sure how Simmons could play next to Sabonis in a movement system with handoffs, because if you're sagging off of him, the paint's going to be clogged. Sabonis can't get to the post. It's going to be harder for these players to get downhill. And I I'm using Ben as more of a specialist for this 2016 team. So his job is going to be to come in, play 20 minutes a game, just fly out in transition on the offensive end, dime up his teammates and be an absolute menace on the defensive end. He can provide weak side rim protection, but really he's at his best when he's hustling and harrying primary initiators. And he can do that from positions one through four, really. I I don't think there's really been a five that he's been tested against. I I wouldn't ask him to guard Rudy Gobert. I think he's probably too small to guard Jokic. We saw that Anthony Davis couldn't stop Jokic, so I don't know if Ben Simmons can do that. But he's a great Giannis defender. He's a great KD defender. He's a great Trey Young defender. During that Atlanta series where it all sort of went wrong for Simmons, there were games where he just completely embarrassed Trey Young, locked him down. He's six foot ten. He used to be so mobile on the perimeter. He could fight through screens and that reach coupled with his speed just made him such a tough proposition. And he was a real defensive player of the year candidate. And I think that last year where Rudy won it when he was still in Philadelphia, Ben Simmons felt really hard done by that he wasn't defensive player of the year. And I think that's fair. You've got a guy that's switchable one through four. And honestly, it's just such a shame that he doesn't have a shot. In this team, like we said, transition, diamond up teammates get the ball go downhill because he used to be able to do that he was an elite rim finisher he's still at 56 percent field goal percentage for his entire career so that shows you that when he gets downhill even if players are sagging off him he's going into a pack paint he can finish creatively and ultimately he can really throw down so he's our seventh man i i don't want to forget what ben simmons was like and ultimately i really hope that he returns to some version of his best game because at his best he's a really exciting player to watch he's generating threes for his teammates he's getting to the cup he had a little bit of a post-up game he had a hook shot that he relied upon we're never going to see him taking mid-rangers we're never going to see him taking threes but ben is really fun and there are definitely settings where if he were to return to i don't even know if it's full confidence anymore I, I wonder if it's sort of physical condition we've heard about back issues he he can be utilized still in the nba he's he's not a 35 million dollar player i'd be really interested to see what his next contract looks like he's he's really got make it or break it years coming up and i i wonder if he's really going to have the motivation to play through and accept a new role But we'll see. I hope that Ben Simmons pans out wherever it is, whether it's on Brooklyn, whether it's in a new setting. He needs to go somewhere, work on his game, get fit, get confident, and hopefully we can see Ben return to his best. And to sort of counteract Simmons, we've got a player that traditionally would pair really, really well with the Australian guard. I think we're subbing these guys in in rotation together, and that is a three-point specialist in Buddy Heald. So... 
I'm not going to speak a ton about Buddy Hield. You guys know he's just an absolute three-point gunner. He shot 40% for his career. He gets them up on high volume. And uh, I think the interesting wrinkle about Buddy is, while he's a little bit of a slouch defensively, he's still a big body, still a big frame. He's not going to get punished in the post necessarily. He's just a little bit slack on defensive assignments and he doesn't move his feet too quickly. But offensively, in a different way to Sabonis, he just makes the game much easier for his teammates. Uh, I've heard lots of Tyrese Halliburton interviews where he just speaks about how Buddy is constantly screening for other guards, ghost screens, slips, just complicating the action for defenders when they're tackling primary assignments. And I think he's a really, really great complimentary player to sub in, play 15, 20 minutes a game next to your Ingrams, your Murrays, your Browns, just ease the game and I think with that level of talent that this team has yes there's no top 10 player in the league there's a couple of all NBA guys but they're all of a really high caliber and to me this team is a supercharged 2016 Hawks that team that had 60 wins and then gets obliterated by LeBron in the postseason during the Cavs era Um, just five guys that aren't necessarily all NBA level year in year out but really really talented players that fit together you've got spacing you've got defensive versatility you've got ball movement and I think they're probably one of the deepest rosters we're going to discuss even if they're lacking a little bit of top end talent so that's our eight man rotation we've got Jamal Murray at the point Jalen Brown at the shooting guard Brandon Ingram playing as a small forward Pascal Siakam as a power forward Demanta Sabonis as our center with DeJounte Murray Ben Simmons and Buddy Hield coming off the bench. And so, matching up against that 2016 team, we've got 1986. And I'm going to go through these players, just give you a little bit more background on them, and then we'll come together to talk about what the fit is going to look like towards the end of the segment. So, the 1986 draft will probably forever be remembered as the Cavs draft because that's the year where they sort of escaped the Ted Steffian mismanagement of their entire organization and they selected three franchise guys simultaneously they got Ron Harper they got Mark Price they got Brad Doherty with the eighth 25th and first picks respectively and that just set the organization up for 10 years of real success that the most successful period they had until LeBron came back in 2015 so if you want to hear a little bit more about that i recommend going to secret base they've done maybe an hour-long documentary on the cavaliers taking you through ted steffian taking you through that sort of golden late 80s era where these three young guys who are all going to feature in our team uh really carried them to a lot of success and it's, it's a really interesting story so check that out um but yeah, it's it's really interesting roster. I'm going to jump straight in. Our point guard, the guy that we just mentioned, the 25th pick in the draft, Mark Price. So Mark actually went in the second round. He was picked up for chump change by the Cavaliers. I think they traded a 1989 second round pick to bring Price into the organization. And he, he was one of the best pure point guards of the late 80s. He's uh, got four all-star selections to his name was an incredible shooter, one of the early proponents of the three-point shot, actually taking three a game in his first All-Star year in 88-89, knocking him down at a 44% clip. Uh, Never dropped below seven assists per season during his prime, topping out at a massive 10.4 in 1991. Just one of the purest shooters the game has ever seen. 
had three years in a row where he shot 95% from the line, 94% from the line, and 94% from the line, which are some of the highest averages we've seen in history. He's undersized at six foot one, but he had a fantastic career. And if you go back and watch him, he's really, really a modern point guard, a real scoring threat who could dish simultaneously. And he's just going to thrive in a slightly more off-ball role if we're given the keys to the centre and who he's going to play with at shooting guard. He's just going to be able to space the floor. I think he'd translate really, really well to today's game. Had a lovely passing feel, got the ball to his big men in the post, got the ball to Ron Harper to set up some really lovely sort of slashing dunks. Just a wonderful player, really worth watching. And he's going to be our point guard for this team. And partnering him at the shooting guard position, a player that was once mentioned in the same breath as Michael Jordan and Clyde Drexler as a top three shooting guard in the league. Someone that had insane athleticism, could get to the cup and throw down in an era where you had seven foot trees just parked by the basket. And that's Ron Harper. So you guys might know Ron Harper a little bit better from his Chicago Bulls days. This is post-ACL tear, post-knee injury, basically, where he lost a lot of that athleticism. But during his peak, Ron was a 20-point-per-game scorer, a super crafty finisher from around the rim. Again, he got his teammates involved, took on a lot of ball-handling responsibilities, and was just an absolute dog on the defensive end. Uh, played with a gold chain around his neck, and I honestly bring gold chains back. They make players look ten times cooler. Ron's got fantastic highlights, and at six foot six, he's got real size to bother anyone on the perimeter. With the Bulls, he was part of a switching defense that I say switching. You didn't necessarily have switching, but him, Pippin, Rodman, and Jordan could guard anyone one through four. And that's going to be super, super useful against the length that the 2016 team has. But Ron is going to be our shooting guard. He's good for individual isolation scoring. He had a nice mid-range jumper. And he's won a championship five times in his career. He's got five rings, a full hands worth, just an incredible player and a great backcourt partner for Mark Price, considering that he spent his peak years next to Price challenging in the Eastern Conference alongside him so he's our shooting guard and playing at the small forward slightly unorthodox I I previously had Chuck Person in here who's he's actually going to be relegated to our bench but it's a big what if in history another guy that stood up to Michael Jordan over the years quite famously so in Drazen Petrovic Drazen just again we had a real real sweet spot in 1986 for drafting pure pure shooters and Petrovic was a fantastic scorer who made his way in Europe, became easily the best player in EuroLeague and came over in the 89-90 seasons, played for the Portland Trailblazers at his age 25 season. Portland actually much bigger on drafting foreign prospects than pretty much any other team in the league, which we're going to see with the centre selection in a moment. But Petrovic, just a dead-eye shooter, a guy that could create for himself could score in the mid-range and from three and let me just hit you with some numbers so in his last two seasons of his career if you didn't know Petrovic's career was cut short by a tragic car crash that happened in Germany after the 92-93 season Petrovic scored 20.6 points per game in 91-92 and 22.3 points per game in 92-93 for the New Jersey Nets he shot over 50% from the field and he was 44% from three in 91-92 and 45% in 92-93. This is a guy that could shoot them off the dribble, off the catch. Uh, It was great from the free throw line as well. 
never dropping below 80% once he really established himself in the league and just a pure bucket getter and a real determined player. I've watched a couple of things about Drazen and what you hear emphasised is just how much of a competitor he was. He's one of the few players that Michael Jordan credits as being able to talk trash to him and then back it up. So that tells you all you need to know about Petrovic. He's our three. Coming in at the power forward position, a guy that revolutionised the game is probably universally loved. I say universally, he's a very controversial character, but the best pound-for-pound rebounder in history, one of the best defenders. We've got Dennis Rodman playing at the four. Dennis had great success with both the Pistons and the Bulls and has five NBA championships to his name. Eight all-defensive selections, two defensive player of the years, two all-NBA selections, and just a phenomenal, unique player. Six foot seven, 210 pounds, could guard one through four, could give fives trouble, You listen back to old interviews and they just talk about how strong Robin was, what his motor was like. If you guys listen to Ben Taylor of Thinking Basketball, when he puts together his ideal fives, I think this has been a question at times about, you know, who are some really complimentary players that you could pair with people throughout history? He loves the idea of pairing Nikola Jokic with the Robin of the Pistons era that was just an absolute energizer bunny. Gave Larry Bird more problems than anyone else in his career. Really got up in his face, could shift his feet and could rebound like probably no one else. I mean, he's up there with Moses Malone and Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain. And this is a guy that was six foot seven. Uh, I'll talk about Dennis's role in the team a little bit more. But what he's going to bring is absolute fire, pace in transition, second chance opportunities. He was a decent passer as well. He could pass after getting the rebound. He didn't just chuck the shot back up. Um, he's he's not going to have a ton of on-ball usage. I mean, he didn't have that for the Bulls, but just a phenomenal player to have in your ranks. And he's going to be our four. And playing next to him as the five is the guy that I want to devote a little bit of time to on this podcast. So that's Arvida Sabonis. And some of you guys haven't heard of him. Some of you guys know about him from his Portland days. And a couple of you will know who we're talking about in terms of what this guy was like in his prime. Picture this. So seven foot four center. Yes, seven foot four. The height of Victor Wembanyama, built like a lumberjack. He looks like a character from folklore. And what I'm going to do to sort of paint a picture of how good this guy was is I'm going to read you a scouting report that a guy called Marius did. You might know him on Twitter. He's recently got an NBA internship, but he went back and watched a ton of games from 1986 and before. So this is 22-year-old Sabonis and younger. This is prior to him first injuring his Achilles tendon. Um, The USSR gets a lot of flack from Sabonis because they forced him to play upwards of 120 games a year. He used to play for Lithuania's biggest team, Jalgaris, who are a EuroLeague giant, absolutely massive. Lithuania is massive on basketball. They've got some of the most passionate fans in the world. And he loved playing for his team, but also played for the USSR. And essentially, by age 30, had been absolutely played into the ground, had suffered a number of injuries. In fact, Portland's uh, team physician who analysed Sabonis when he came over in 1996, when he was 30 years old, so sorry, 1994, uh, said that Arvidas could qualify for a handicapped parking spot based on his x-ray alone. This is a guy that had his knees torn to shreds, his feet, he's seven foot four, so 
really, really sort of struggled with injuries. But before that, Sabonis was a focal point on offense, a guy that could score from all three levels, seven foot four, and had a really, really good outside shot, could shoot from the mid range. He was a fantastic play finisher, the kind of guy that had really, really good mobility for his height would be an absolute nightmare in the pick and roll to deal with seven foot four could catch lobs could throw down but really what made Sabonis special and what really translated when he came over eventually in 96 was that playmaking feel he's got a wonderful highlight reel of fantastic behind the back passes uh, diamond up teammates without looking just a focal point on offense from the post and pretty much from anywhere and I implore you, go and check this guy out because this is the guy that Nikola Jokic was compared to before he really asserted himself as the biggest and best passing big man of all time. The list goes Jokic, Sabonis, Walton. Maybe you can interchange those two and three spots. But like we said, seven foot four and just a super imposing rim protector, a guy that would happily play in drop coverage and just swallows up the court. Sabonis is famous for destroying the USA Olympic team in 1988 so this is post-injury this is not a guy at his peak he played against David Robinson and he played against Ralph Sampson two physical gods right and he just gave them absolute work he swallowed up David Robinson this is the guy that prompted the foundation of the 92 dream team the USA decided we can't win anymore if these are the guys that the USSR is putting out. We have to get our professional players to come and play. It can't just be college guys. But he he was a really vertical player at 7-4. Kind of crazy to imagine. He was fast. He could move laterally, backwards. Just absolutely swallow you up in the pick and roll. And basically what I'm describing here is the biggest what if in NBA history, for my money anyway. I just, I, I can't believe the ceiling that this guy had. He could space from three. He could operate out of the post. Sort of a one-on-one. How do you stop a guy that's seven foot four and built like a redwood, like a giant sequoia in the post? I don't know. He's just absolutely insane. And then on the defensive end, he's being described as Rudy Gobert. Just swallows everything at the rim, catches every rebound, gets his team going in transition and has elite touch as well. It's it's such a shame we don't quite know what Sabonis was at peak just because we don't have a ton of footage and he, he never really reached his peak. At age 22, you've still got a lot left to learn in the game, particularly in today's game. But just to give you a little flavour of what players thought he could be, David Robinson speaks about him as the best opponent he ever faced. Bill Walton said after seeing him in 1982 at age 17, that is the best player in the world. That is the best player I've ever seen. Two generational bigs crediting this guy as nothing they'd ever seen before. And maybe it's fitting that he looks like a character from out of a fairy tale because the way that X-Pro speak about him, he's someone from folklore. He is a what if, he is a could you imagine what this guy would have been like? And really, what we saw in the NBA was a guy that wasn't mobile, a guy that could dime up teammates, that could score, that could shoot, but really didn't have the mobility. I think if you want to see Sabonis at his best in the NBA, he won Rookie of the Year, or Sixth Man of the Year, rather, in 96. Um, 
after coming over age 30. Uh, but he gave Shaq real trouble in 2000 when the Lakers win their maiden Kobe and Shaq championship. Really, really good at guarding the big man in the post. Just so physically imposing. And he is going to be our five. Just had everything to his game on the offensive end and the defensive end. And I think that had he not had injuries, he was spoken about as the next great generational big. As the guy that bridged the gap between Kareem and Shaq. Just absolutely up there on those levels. So go and check out as much tape as you can. I'm going to link the scouting report that I've got here in the description. Give it a read because it just paints a picture of such a tantalising what if. And yeah, if I was Lithuania, I would still be banging on about this guy. I get why they do. I get why Portland loves him. And I'd love to imagine this matchup between his son and him in the post. Truthfully, I think that Demantas is getting swallowed. But that's our start in five. Uh, the three bench spots, uh, we've got a lot of depth, actually. So coming off the bench as our sixth man is the number one pick from this draft, a guy that we spoke about at the top, and that's Brad Doherty, a rim-running big man, real defensive anchor, seven foot tall, quite mobile for his size with scoring touch. Could You could throw it down to him in the post, uh, and he'd generate his own shot. And he was really an anchor for some of the best defences of the 80s, something that the Cleveland teams prided themselves on so he's going to be able to come in and defend really respectably against the Sabonis against whoever anyone is going to throw at him um he is our sixth man and I think a lot of people would argue that Brad should be the starting big just because we don't know what Sabonis really was we don't necessarily have enough on tape but I think it's a much more fun exercise if we imagine the what could have been what this guy was like at 22 and you know sort of really play for ceiling and imagine what this guy could have panned out to be so sixth man Brad Doherty you can feel really hard done by I completely get that and then as our seventh guy we've got Another really, really reliable shooter. One of the uh, white guys of the 80s. You probably look at him now and think he's a plumber, but he shot 40% from three. He could play make. He was a nightmare on the defensive end for opposing players. And at six foot three, that's Jeff Hornacek. Jeff, just sort of a prototypical three and D wing slash guard before it was cool. Really, really worked his butt off across the court, threw himself at whatever he was doing, whether he was filling the lane in transition shooting off the catch from three or guarding really tough assignments on the perimeter uh had an eye for a pass and really really enhanced the utah jazz teams of the late 1990s when they traded for him was a real asset completed that big three uh just a real asset to have coming off the bench for this team and at eighth man who i originally had starting just because size wise it made a little bit more sense we've mentioned him before it's Chuck Person. So Chuck, uh, known as the Rifleman at eighth man, he's playing 15, 20 minutes off the bench, but just a respectable three-point shooter, shot 40% from behind the arc numerous times in his career, a little bit dodgy from the free throw line, not necessarily the best one-on-one -on -one defender, which was always a criticism when um, he was the number two option on Indiana Pacers teams, uh, along with Reggie Miller and Rick Smits. They were fantastic to watch offensively, but just couldn't stop anyone on the defensive end. Uh, Chuck, a good rebounder as well, sat at around seven to eight rebounds a game and had a great college career as well. Uh, played at Auburn with Charles Barkley before he went and got drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers. 
six foot eight swingman that showed he can come in and he can adapt his role. He was a first slash second option for well over half of his career, scoring about 17, 18 points per game for Indiana. Uh, had a misguided trade to the Minnesota Timberwolves, but really found a role and found a home on competing teams for the San Antonio Spurs, where he was utilised as a three-point specialist. So he rounds out at eight-man rotation. And now just to talk a little bit about the 86 team, how they're going to play. Uh, in my view, they've got three guys that can initiate the offense, and that's Sabonis from the post, that's Mark Price on the perimeter, and that's Ron Harper. You've then got Drazen, who can attack closeouts, can score from the mid-range, space from three. Uh, and Dennis Rodman is just, his job is going to be to cut and cut and cut and rebound an offensive rebound around Sabonis. And this whole thing is just going to flow through Arvidas. He's going to station himself at the elbows. He's going to dime up three-point shooters. This is a team that's made for movement. You've got Rodman, who was hyper-athletic. Harper, who was really, really athletic and could get up. So you're getting guys in motion, getting them moving towards the rim. And if it's not that, you've got absolute dead eyes playing on the perimeter. And in terms of a second unit... Brad Doherty, a great defensive anchor, could score from the post and you've got enough offensive threat dependent on how you want to stagger your lineups to constantly carry a, a high-level offense with a really, really strong defense. So there are two teams. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to give my perspective on it. What I'd say is that 2016 has such a depth of talent and you guys know those players and you know that they're switchable, that they'd fit together. But so does 1986 before you vote on who you want to progress through to the next round just check these guys out because they're so fun the late 80s the early 90s was such a golden age for the NBA before we had a little bit of a drop off in talent towards the mid to late um, Mark Price a fantastic modern player Ron Harper five championships for a reason Drazen one of the best three-point shooters we've ever seen. Dennis Rodman, I don't need to tell you about. Arvidas, the biggest what-if in NBA history. And personally, I'm going to back the 86 team to win. I'm going to back Arvidas to beat his son, Demantas, because he's seven foot four. He can do everything that Demantas can do, and I don't think that 86 has an answer for him. Park him in the post. He's scoring 25. Take him out of the post open up the perimeter for your cutters in Harper and Rodman and he's diming them up along with Mark Price all day long all while being able to space from three and from what I've read you've essentially got Rudy in the paint so so many rejections are coming at the paint he's dominated generational big men before and I think he's going to swing this matchup and I'd be really interested to hear how you guys want me to handle Sabonis going forward because we don't have the sample size that we do for some of the other uh, classic greats we've got a ton of film for them but I think he's up there in terms of a ceiling with pretty much anyone you can throw out there so for me 86 goes through they've got a thoroughly modern team they've got spacing they've got cutting they've got movement they've got strong perimeter defenders and a phenomenal rim protector whether that's the guy starting or playing off the bench so for me 86 takes it even though 2016 is sort of a modern version Six all-stars, two complementary role players, shot creation, versatility on defense. But 
I like the 86 team. I want some of these classic teams to go through so we can carry on talking about them. I feel like I've set you guys up to know about the 86 team now so we can really get into the nitty gritty of the matchups if they progress through to the second round. But yeah, that's it. That's this episode. It's run on slightly long. I've geeked out on the 86 team, maybe a little bit too much. And I love talking about the guys from 2016 as well because we can imagine what they're going to be like playing together. It's such a level of talent that they'd have. We don't see that in the NBA. I think it's really fun to think about. But that's been the third episode of First in Class. That's been the seventh episode of The Drop Step. Uh, We're getting up there now. I'm really happy about that. And um, we're going to have a couple of guests coming on the next few episodes of the show, which I'm really excited about. You're not just going to have to listen to my voice drone on hopefully someone can slow me down a little bit but if you like this podcast please vote on the twitter poll that i'm going to post i'm also going to post one to fanspo just so we can get some engagement going and share with your friends drop a five star review and let me know what you thought of the episode but have a fantastic day we're officially into the dead zone of the nba off season so i hope that you carry on tuning in for first in class thanks for listening and goodbye